Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's proposed tax hike is still too high for many. The YMCA wants a new home. We're going to be the sugar capital of Canada. Cannabis in grocery stores? And I'm also going to touch on healthcare and food discounts. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Close to 50 people appeared before Hamilton councillors yesterday as uh, they were talking about Hamilton's budget priorities. The projected tax increase for this year currently is at 7.9%, and uh, a lot of residents say they just can't afford that. They can't afford that number. Is there a possibility of a further reduction of the tax rate or have all options been exhausted? Let's not forget, this started at 14.2%. We're now down to about 8%. Andrea Horvath is the mayor of the city of Hamilton and joins us here on GMH on 900 CHML. Madam Mayor, good morning. How are you? Very well, thanks, Rick. Good morning. Maybe we'll start with that first question I just asked. Have all options been exhausted? Can we get even lower than 7.9%? Well, the um, the process is starting. And so we had our delegations, as you mentioned, uh, last night. And we've got a number of budget meetings that the council will be uh, struggling with the um, the decisions that need to be made. And I, I do want to reassure people that I know it's really hard out there right now. Uh, I know it's hard times and I know that it's really expensive uh, to just get through everyday life these days. And we need to make sure that our, our property taxes are manageable that we're really looking carefully at how we're investing and everything that we're doing to try to make things better for Hamiltonians. But we always knew that this was going to be a really hard budget year. Uh, But we are definitely moving in the right direction, as you mentioned, right? 14.2 is where we started. And I just want to say that 4.3% is the municipal responsibility in that figure that you identified. In other words, the municipal spending decisions that we've made uh, are about 4.3%. The remainder of that that figure uh, is is coming from provincial pressures. Uh, 3.6% of that 7.9% is provincial. Only 4.3% is municipal. So that brings us to the 7.9% right now. Again, way down from the 14%. But we've seen what's happening in other municipalities as well. We're not on our own here. Uh, I think Toronto is currently grappling with 16%. We've seen other uh, municipalities uh, talking about 10%, 8%. So it's definitely a tough year. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that folks, uh, under that, are, that not only that we're doing everything we can to uh, to do the, the the right thing around where the numbers come in, but to help people understand that we we have control over some of it. Uh, but but really, we need the other orders of government, as we've said many times, to uh, to actually pick up their share of the costs. But if they don't, uh, it ends up with the property taxpayer, which is that 3.6% uh, provincial pressures that uh, that I mentioned. The message from taxpayers, and you heard it, uh, I'm sure, a few times yesterday, was that it's time for the city to live within its means. And I'm sure council is taking that to heart. To that effect, are you able to use your strong mayor powers to you know whittle away at that number? Uh, well, in fact, I'm pretty pretty proud of what what we've done so far, what I've done so far, knowing that this was going to be a a really significant uh, budget year in terms of the pressures. Uh, I asked the staff through my mayoral mayoral responsibilities that uh, are included in the strong mayor powers to bring back a budget uh, that um, that wrestles with that 14.2 that uses other kinds of tools to um, to try to uh, kind of 
cushion the impact, if you will, uh, on on uh, municipal taxpayers. And so uh, so they did that work. And that's what got us down from the 14.2. Uh, as you know, we've been lobbying other orders of government to get them to step up. Sadly, we haven't seen uh, them take up the, the mantle, although I do have to acknowledge that the federal government did provide uh, over just over $3 million to help with some of the uh, refugee uh, and um, asylum seeker costs. Uh, mind you, we asked for 10, uh, a little over 10, and, and we received uh, three thus far. So we're still looking for the remainder of that bill to be paid and for a commitment on an annualized basis uh, to have the federal government uh, make sure that they're uh, picking up the costs at the uh, local level for um, for the work that needs to be done to uh, to uh, provide services to asylum seekers and, and uh, uh, re- refugees and immigrants. How would you describe the mood at City Hall during these meetings? Is it tense? Is it rather easy because you've been through this process before? Just talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, it's never easy, Rick, particularly in a in a budget year like this one. Uh, and again, uh, we I knew and we all knew we were warned it was going to be a, a tough budget year. Uh, we have some serious, serious challenges that, that our municipality is facing um, and we're you know we're we're going in the right direction in terms of bringing it down, uh, but it's a lot. It's a hard. It's tough slogging, right? At what when we when we look though at what the people of Hamilton are saying to us around investments in housing and homelessness. One point six percent of that property tax increase is housing and homelessness investments. Uh, you know, city services overall. We know inflation is hitting everybody. Uh, we know that costs of everything are up. Well, that's true for the city too. Uh, so it's almost three percent. Two point seven percent is um, is really. Uh, that's a driver for 2.7% of the cost increases. And so it's, it's, it's really problematic to, um, you know, to, to, to wrestle with all these things and still provide the level of services and quality of services and, and address some of the, the, the crises really that we're facing, um, you know, without, without investing. And so that's why, that's why we've done what we've done. We've, um, and what, what I did, which is to tell uh, our staff, uh, that um, that we need to find ways to to cushion the impact. There's also, and this is a last one for you, I have about just over a minute. There's a new bylaw coming to council, at least the proposed bylaw coming to council later on today aimed at protecting uh, tenants from rent evictions. We spoke about it yesterday with Councillor Narendra Nan. That also comes with a cost. The benefit obviously would be huge for those who are facing rent evictions. What do you make of this? Is this something that we're going to uh, uh, put into the equation for this year or next? Well, I think that's that's one of the pieces that's on the table. And as you identify, uh, there are some high cost matters. These that particular initiative is already baked in to the number that's uh, in front of us. So that four point three percent municipal um, is is already inclusive of that initiative. And and as you said, I mean, is it going to be a tense or it's going to be easy? It's never easy uh, because it's always about choices and priorities. And and you know, it's a quite a diverse council, which I think is a positive thing in terms of um, you know having lots of different voices around the table. But wrestling us to a consensus or to some kind of um, you know decision is 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 going to be. Um, complex and we're going to have those conversations. So I, I can't I can't predict where council is going to go, but what I can say is those kinds of initiatives are already kind of uh, baked in. So it would be a matter of uh, of uh, determining whether 
that's something to go forward, as you say, uh, at this point or or in the future. But we do have a crisis when it comes to housing and homelessness. We've identified it as an emergency. Uh, if that's the case, then then what do you do when you have an emergency? When you have a crisis, you put your attention uh, to the crisis to try to uh, to try to address it. Do we need the other partners, federal and provincial, to help us with that? Absolutely. But in the meantime, it's Hamiltonians that are that are being evicted and ending up uh, in uh, uh, in a, a situation of houselessness. And, and we have to do everything we can to uh, you know to prevent that from continuing to increase because we've heard loudly and clearly, I've heard loudly and clearly uh, that people are really concerned. And I am also very concerned about the people who will remain unhoused in our community. Mayor Horvath, I really appreciate the time this morning. Best of luck going forward with uh, the budget deliberations. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Rick. Always enjoy talking to you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk a little bit about cannabis as well as Loblaw tweaking its expiration discount policy and Value Village getting slammed for upselling. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst and author of Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. And he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Bruce, welcome back to the show. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. A uh, Value Village in Toronto is being accused of price gouging after one customer in particular found a flower pot and shared this on social media, this picture of a flower pot with its original price tag attached underneath. And it was priced, I think it was $3. And on the side of the flower pot was the Value Village price tag, and it was $6 more. Is this fair or foul? No, that's definitely a foul. I mean, uh, I'm hoping that it's sort of a one-off incident, but you know, from what I understand, there's a few tidbits on social media of this happening. So I think, I think they have to really look at their processes, and they're sort of in a weird area because they feel like they're a not-for-profit just based on being a donation center, but they're actually not. They're a for-profit company, so consumers need to kind of be aware of that. Well, for profit and then some, because many of the items <laughs> that they sell are donated. They, they're not paying for any of their product. Yeah, that's the thing that sort of hurts a bit more, right? Is they're, you know, they're getting donated inventory and then they're, they're sort of marking it up. There's no cost of goods sold or limited cost of goods sold. So it kind of really hurts, you know, when you kind of hear about a company like that, you know, that's doing that. And again, I hope it's just a one-off, but I'm starting to see more and more sort of rumbling about how their prices are extremely high. And uh, it's a major turnoff, I think, for consumers. Consumers will lose trust in the brand. Absolutely. And that's a dangerous and a slippery slope to be on because once you lose the consumer trust, um, you know, you're in trouble. Exactly. I mean, that's just it. You know, I mean, I, I've shopped there too before and I enjoyed shopping there. But but you know what? If you start, you start to see the prices sneak up, it's almost not worth it. You're better off, you know, maybe just going to a, a retailer and buying new products. That's where they're kind of heading, right? So I think they have to be really careful with their value proposition and really sort of... Uh, look in the mirror here and sort of reevaluate uh, the balance between profit and value. Back to the fair or foul, legally, they are allowed to do this, right? Yeah, of course. I don't think there's anything stopping them, you know, but it's like, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about, blah, blah, there's the law and then there's the court of public opinion. Well, let's get to the Loblaw story, because this has a lot of people hot under the collar. If you haven't heard, Loblaw Company is changing its expiration discount policy at stores like Loblaws and No Frills and Zares. Value Mart is in there as well. Perishable items, so those 
apples and bananas that are nearing expiration, you'll see them on, you know, shelving that uh, will have a post of, you know, discounted at 50% off. But now that discount is going to range from between 30 to 50%. And Bruce, it feels like, you know, this major grocer, which has a gazillion dollars in the bank account and seems to be breaking in the dough, is only concerned about their bottom line and forgetting about their customers. Yeah, I think I think um, Loblaw has to really, uh, again, just like Value Village, kind of look in the mirror and say, you know what, uh, we're not, you know, we're not reading the room, as, as uh, Sylvain Charlebois would say. Um, you know, we're not really sort of uh, keeping our finger on the pulse of consumers, because although technically this is legal and there's no problem, as far as I know, it's legal, there's no problem with it. You know, they're matching a competitor. It sort of throws uh, salt in the wounds to a lot of people who depend on those uh, items that are about to expire to make ends meet. So. You know, it's sort of capitalism at its extreme. And, and I think that Canadians expect more from a big Canadian icon like that. Also, I mean, we're in January. The, the Christmas bills are coming in the mail. Probably not the best month to announce this either. No, it's not. And uh, it just it's just a real wake-up call. And, uh, you know, I think Lava, like I said, just really needs to sort of look in the mirror here and really think about, you know, their image in Canada and how far they can go because eventually – you know, consumers may start to boycott them. They may already have. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's just something that is against our DNA as Canadians. And we just feel like, like they're sort of taking advantage of us. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Bruce Winder is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Bruce is a retail analyst and also author of the book Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. Get it wherever you get your favorite books. I want to ask you about this cannabis in grocery stores idea. It's the focus of our mm-hmm. poll question today. If, is this a good, from a retail landscape, is this a good move for grocery stores? I think overall it's it's a good move um, because it's another uh, income stream for them. You know, the, the margins are fairly tight on, on cannabis. You're not going to make a lot of money on it. But if you think about, you know, the consumer, the consumer, a lot of Canadians enjoy uh, legal cannabis. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense. It's more convenient for them. Now, what it does is it's going to hurt probably the independent uh, cannabis shops. So, you know, you kind of have to look at, at both. And most of those are independent sort of mom and pop stores. So it's probably really bad for them. Uh, it might be better for the consumer just from a convenience standpoint. This probably goes back to, you know, the mom and pop stores um, got really sideswiped by those big box stores where it's one-stop shopping. You can now go to a Walmart or you can now go to, you know, a Costco and get everything under the sun. From a cannabis perspective, you can now go to a No Frills or a Zare or whatever the case is and get your cannabis if this comes to be. And that's, uh, yeah, I agree. This is really going to hurt those cannabis standalones right now. Yeah, it's going to, I mean, they're already in, in a lot of trouble. The independent cannabis stores are having a real hard time right now. You know, I think maybe we, tr- the province may have extended too many licenses too quick and, you know, didn't really think about zoning. They sort of allowed the stores to be really close to each other. So a lot of them are challenged and they're probably going to, some of them are going to bow out and go bankrupt over the next little while. So probably not the best from an independent business standpoint, especially as the SIBA loans are due this week as well. Yeah. Add add more saturation to the market and it's not uh, a good story to tell for those standalones. Bruce, thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. Bruce Winder is a retail analyst. You can also check out his book, Retail Before, During and After COVID-19. It's certainly been a a bumpy ride in that respect, for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton is set to become the sugar capital of Canada. No joke, Hamilton's going to become the major hub for sugar 
by having Canada's biggest sugar processing plant. So it's announced yesterday, Sucrocan Sourcing is investing $135 million in a new refinery. And this new refinery is going to be in place on Pier 15. It's going to have the capacity to produce 1 million metric tons of sugar per year. It's a lot of double-doubles. <laughs> Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority President and CEO Ian Hamilton yesterday said that it's going to support Canada's food supply chain and create more jobs. Many companies have really been craving for this type of um, uh, sugar supply and consistent sugar supply. And as a result of this, we believe that they're going to start to invest in their own assets and grow their own capacity. So the $135 million here is probably going to translate to close to a billion dollars of investment overall in the province. Well, that is big bucks. The facility expected to open in 2025. Let's bring in Larissa Fenn. Larissa is the Vice President of Corporate Affairs with the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Larissa, good Good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How was Hamilton able to snag this deal? Well, Hamilton has a lot of uh, the ingredients that you might say for um, a facility like this. I think the things that really put us um, out front in terms of attracting this um, incredible investment. Um, our We do have an existing partnership with the company. They they have a smaller facility on uh, Pier 10 that they quickly outgrew, but they did do due diligence around the province. And so uh, our relationship, as well as the really um, extensive transportation infrastructure that is available at that site, the company can access marine, road and rail infrastructure and the uh, you know in a in a business like that having an efficient supply chain makes all the difference. Will this new facility replace the smaller facility you just re- referenced? Yes, it will. Okay. So when the um, build out is complete at Pier 15, the Pier 10 facility will wind down. Do we know how many other communities and ports were in the mix for this? I'm afraid I don't know that. I just know that uh, that uh, we had to make a really compelling case why Hamilton was the best place for this facility. This is a big win. I mean, this is a $135 million plan. A number of new jobs are going to be created. How or, or am I overselling it? Is it not as big as I'm kind of saying? I'm thinking it's huge. It is huge. It will be the biggest sugar refinery in Canada. So that's a big deal. And the sugar, um, uh, the sugar sector, the food processing sector has, particularly in Eastern Canada, has been um, uh, sort of stretched for a long time um, with regard to the this uh, particular input. People who manufacture uh, food and beverages have been um, having some supply chain challenges. So this really does fill in a need in the market um, that is already there, but also sets the stage for those kinds of um companies to have the confidence to invest in their own facilities and grow um, more jobs, um, you know, in all kinds of other uh, food manufacturing businesses across Ontario. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Larissa Fenn, Vice President of Corporate Affairs at the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority, just yesterday announcing a new $135 million investment from Sucrocan Sourcing. They're going to be building a new refinery for sugar on Pier 15. Does a deal like this get others in this uh, realm talking with each other to say, wow, maybe we should be in the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority, uh, you know, uh, uh, infrastructure or structure as well? 
Um, yeah, we we certainly um, do see a bit of a, a bump in interest when we make an announcement like this because we get a chance to talk about all of the great um, reasons why it makes sense to bring a business to Hamilton. And in our case, um, the really compelling reason here are those uh, supply chain um, supports, the transportation um, assets that we are able to um, able to leverage. That really is this. The secret ingredient that that may, brings value to the industrial lands at Hamilton's waterfront is the ability to access all of those modes of transportation. Will this? How much? How much busier will the port be? Are we going to actively see many more transportation? You know, ships, rail, uh, um, trucks in and out of the port. Yeah, so this facility, um, just to give you a sense of scale, the the Pier 10 facility handles about 100,000, 140,000 tons of sugar um, last year. Um, and this, at its full build-out, will handle a million tons. And so that translates into about 50 vessels. Wow. So that that's a pretty big deal. So it's about 10 times the size of the existing facility. Mm-hmm. Wow. Number of jobs. Do we have an estimate on how many jobs this will create? So at full build out on site, we're looking at about 50 jobs. But as I say, I think the real interesting impact of this uh, facility is the confidence it gives um, food processors, large and small, across Ontario to say like, okay, we have a reliable source of sugar now. Um, you know, our supply chain strains have been addressed and we are able to confidently invest in, in our own facility too. So definitely, definitely jobs at the port, um, definitely, but uh, Hamilton's food processing sector is one of the fastest growing. So I think you'll see um, some spin-off investment as, uh, in that as well. And is this product just being transported within Canada or is this a global enterprise? So about 85% of the product of this facility will be used in the regional food processing cluster. But um, Sucro does have a, a facility in Buffalo. So there's some integration with the with those two. And we expect about 15% of the product to um, enter the direct export market. And then as I say, there's a there's a certain amount of re-exporting of processed foods as well. It is a, uh, dare I say it, sweet deal for the city and Sucro and the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority. We can go on and on with the puns. But Larissa, at the end of the day, it's a great news story for our community. And uh, thanks for being a part of it and a part of the show this morning. Well, thank you so much. Larissa Fenn, VP of Corporate Affairs with the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority. Another big feather in the cap for this community. When you can call yourself the capital of anything, capital of sugar now here in Canada, we are just that. That is a sweet deal. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I wanted to get to some big stories happening provincially, including cannabis and grocery stores. The focus of our poll question of the day, Service Ontario kiosks and some new news this morning as well. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hello, Colin. Hey, good morning. Hey. You know, it's it's the beginning of the year and I forgot how to <laughs> unmute. A good old uh, mute button gets uh, gets you every This time. is what happens over the Christmas holidays. You just forget <laughs> everything, right? I hear you. Hey, new this morning, and you have written about it on globalnews.ca, Premier Doug Ford's Build Homes Faster Plan, not really going according to plan. What have you learned? 
Yeah, that's correct. I mean, so at the end of the year, the Ford government had wanted to build about uh, 110,000 homes. That was a target that the province had set for itself uh, for the end of the year. And, and turns out, once all of the housing starts were, were calculated, that means shovels in the actual ground, uh, you know, homes actually started uh, construction, they built about 85,000 homes. And so that isn't exactly where the province wants it to be. It's it's pretty good. It's about 78% of the target, uh, but it's, it's not quite where they should be in order to meet their goal of building 1.5 million homes. And in fact, the total number of homes started in 2023 was lower than 2022. In 2022, there were 91,000 homes that construction began on. These are uh, single-family homes, multi-residential units, etc. There were 91,000 in 2022, and a drop of about 7% to 2023 of 85,770. So there is going to be a lot more work that the province is going to have to do to accelerate the construction of homes if they want to meet their targets by the end of the decade. A lot of talk about cannabis being sold in grocery stores sometime soon and service Ontario locations closing but reopening as kiosks in places like Staples and Walmarts. What can you tell us about these two things? Yeah, so when it comes to cannabis in grocery stores, this is a lobbying effort on behalf of Loblaws to change some of the rules. Right now, there are rules set by the province in terms of where cannabis can be sold, right? It has to be a certain distance away from schools, as an example. It has to be, uh, you know, the, the, the front doors have to be kind of completely covered, and so you can't really see what's in them. Uh, then on top of that, uh, you know, there are other considerations that uh, some have to go through. One of the issues is that Cannabis cannot be sold in a place where other things can be sold, right? So as an example, if you're selling chips or chocolate bars, you can't sell cannabis. Loblaws wants to change those rules to allow the sale of uh, these items, cannabis, inside of a grocery store. They want a store within a store model. They're lobbying for it doesn't necessarily mean that the province is going to give it to them. And it's a long lobbying effort as well. When it comes to Service Ontario, this is a really kind of interesting um, issue. So Service Ontario, the province says there have been some Service Ontario kiosks or, or locations that are all privately owned that were the contract was set to expire with the province anyway. And now the um, the, the province is essentially saying that they're going to move these into service uh, into Staples Canada locations. These Staples Canada locations, they say, are you know fairly widely distributed across the province, and so they have the ability to have uh, consumer access. Uh, but there's been a lot of controversy because the province is paying to retrofit these uh, Service Ontario kiosks inside of a private business, and so some have been asking, should taxpayer dollars really be going? Uh, into doing that. Really interesting stuff, and it's all happening in the last uh, week or so. Colin, thanks for the time this morning. Enjoy the day. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario Medical Association proposing some ideas to help our ailing healthcare system, and it all comes as the provincial government is piecing together the upcoming provincial budget. Dr. Andrew Park is the president of the OMA and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Park, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. You've identified three key priorities revolving around uh, primary care, administrative tasks, and home care. Maybe we'll start with primary care. What needs to happen going forward to improve the healthcare system when it comes to uh, that area of healthcare? Um, so in, in short, basically, uh, everyone in Ontario should expect that they um, should have a family doctor. And and we know right now that that is a really challenging spot. Um, so we need to uh, work on the system to ensure that everybody has access through a family doctor. And part of this is the team-based care, which we're seeing in some regards, but uh, I'm guessing you think it could be much bigger and better. Uh, much more so. Only 25% of Ontarians have access to team-based care, and it should be more. The reality is, is that whenever you need to see a healthcare provider, it doesn't always have to be a doctor. So ensuring that you've got the wraparound supports of the different areas of your needs, whether it's, you know, I, I want to learn how to have a better diet. I want to learn a bit more about exercising, or I have an injury that needs a physiotherapist, or I'm struggling with my mental health. I'd like to talk to a social worker. Not all of these things need the doctor in the room. Uh, but certainly the, the doctor can be understanding of where the patient's journey is and get involved as needed. Um, and that's what we're really talking about, team-based uh, care to support the physician as well as their patient population. What's preventing more team-based care facilities from opening up? I mean, the reality is it's cost. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's a cost to hiring um, and, and managing um, the allied supports, um, but that's where we're calling for to say that Look, if you want everyone to have access to a family doctor, um, then then they're going to need to be there's going to need to be more capacity in the system, and that can only happen through teams. Speaking of capacity, what about attrition, retention, recruitment? Is that also a key component to this? Absolutely. Um, right now, uh, people going into the profession are, are looking at family medicine as a less and less attractive option. And part of that is, you know, segueing into our second um, priority, which is the unnecessary administrative burden. The family doctor has kind of become the catch-all for everything. Um, transportation forms, work notes, physiotherapy, paramedicals, um, you name it, and the family doctor is now responsible for it. And we think that that's really taking the family doctor and putting them in front of forms and computers really more so than caring for patients. And that's an inappropriate paradigm that has developed. Well, and we're seeing that whenever you go to the doctor's office. I haven't been to the doctor in a while, but the last time I went, I mean, you're sitting in the waiting room for what seems like an eternity. And then the doctor comes in all the while that doctor is doing paperwork and maybe research for other things that they've already encountered, right? Exactly, exactly. And so so what we want, our aim is getting back to the roots of the profession is to have the doctor caring for patients in front of patients. And whatever we can do to help streamline that process for the doctor is something that we think that is is appropriate and better for care better for care for all Ontarians. We know that also comes with a cost in terms of software, which already is in place, but people managing that interaction with patients and doctors. So obviously, there's a cost there too. It doesn't sound like it would be exorbitant, though. Well, there's a cost to doing it, and there's a cost to doing nothing. And the cost of doing nothing is far greater than the cost of supporting the health care infrastructure, uh, whether it's software. Look, we do this for hospitals all the time. I mean, the government's part of that, that, that process, right? The bricks and mortar. And so what we're saying is that, you know, 
healthcare happens 80% of the times outside of the hospital. And we need to support that infrastructure as well as a healthcare in the hospital. We're talking about uh, healthcare priorities from the Ontario Medical Association as the provincial government compiles its uh, new provincial budget in the next couple of weeks. Dr. Andrew Park is the president of the Ontario Medical Association and joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The third key priority is home care. We already have it. What needs to get better with it to see those improvements in the system? Yeah, so upfront access. Again, what we're talking about is in all the things that we're talking about, we're really trying to be upstream and think about how we can make the greatest impact to the most number of Ontarians so that they're seeing that when they um, have some vulnerabilities, if they're, if they're having some falls at home, that home care is implementable so that they're not saying, I only have one resource, and that resource is a 20-hour wait in an emergency department, which you can imagine for elderly patients is awful. Um, but if they were able to have those services put into place through their family doctor, if you had a care coordinator that worked in the team, along with your family doctor to say, look, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones is having some struggles with their mobility, we can put in those resources up front so that those patients can stay at home as long as possible where they want to be and don't need to be in a hospital where they, they, they do also occupy valuable resources in the beds that our patients need through the emergency department. In our final minute, I know you said there's there's a cost to not doing these things. Do you have a ballpark cost associated with these priorities? Is it a billion? Is it five billion? Is it more? Is it is it less? Yeah, I mean, the, the, these priorities have come up from the fact that this is a, a chronic underfunding of our healthcare system. And what we're looking at both is, is what is the actual number? How do we get that number to the government? But also, how do we allocate the resources that we have currently to shift those priorities that align with ours so that we're ensuring that people have, you know, a family doctor, they they don't need to rely on these horrendous wait times in emergency departments, of which I'm an emergency physician, by the way, and, and, and really are using the system in a way that's best suited to their overall health needs. And that's really what we're focused on. Um, as, as we talk to uh, the Minister of Finance around the budget. Dr. Park, good luck with this. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Brantford has revealed... Uh, More details of its new five-year strategic plan. It looks pretty exciting. Manny Figueredo is the president and CEO of the YMCA of Hamilton, Burlington, Brantford, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Manny, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Uh, The plan is called Igniting Potential to Save Lives. How is the YMCA going to save lives? Uh, Great question, Rick. When I started this uh, new role almost two years ago, Part of my entry plan, I was having multiple conversations with uh, with some of our members and participants, and this theme came up about, thank goodness for the why it saved my life. And I asked people to explain more, and, and what people may not know, the why is a lot more than a gym and swim. We have a vast ecosystem. But I heard from young people, I heard from seniors, examples of people um, people might not know. We have 174 men who live downtown, exactly where I'm calling you from right now, the downtown residents. And they said, if it wasn't for the why, um, I don't know where I'd be if I'd be alive today. Spoken to young people who um, settled here as refugees and said, thank goodness I found the new uh, Youth Newcomer Center, the why. If it wasn't for the why, I don't know where I'd be today. And this theme kept on coming over, including seniors who participate in our partnership with uh, LiveWell, who are post-cardiac, post-stroke, and do the rehab um, through the guidance of doctors at Hamilton Health Science. 
and train our staff. And they say, I found a place to belong and the why has changed my life. And I, and I don't know if I'd be here today without the why. So now with this five-year strategic plan, you're going to harness that concept and, and translate into real-world solutions, one of which is playing an active role in revitalizing the downtown core here in Hamilton with a particular focus on affordable housing. So what, what do you have in plan? Well, we're looking at a new downtown uh, branch. As you know, we have five large branches, but one of the areas of focus that's really been highlighted, COVID, is the need. And, you know, we've, we've presented to different politicians, uh, delegated, talked to different partners around the sustainability of our 174 men residents. It used to be a transitional place where people would move into Hamilton, need a place to stay for a week or two or a month until they found a, a location. But now what we're seeing is, is it's becoming a place where people don't leave. Um, they have nowhere else to go. So we're, we're talking to our municipality. We're also talking to the province and also talking to partners like Good Shepherd Mission Service to say, what are other programs we can put in here to help um, people transition, come back to a transitional housing instead of a shelter? So we, we need the expert support of partners and, and our provincial municipal partners as well to think about what the next 40 years will look like um, for, for the men's residents. So when you say you're looking for a new downtown branch, it wouldn't replace the existing one. This would be an add-on to provide potentially more beds for people who need a place to stay? No, we're looking for a replacement. Yeah. Okay. This building has reached its life cycle. Downtown, We not only do we have 174 men residents, we have a health and fitness branch that you know has reached its life cycle. It's served the community well for the last the original part of the building has been here 100 years. So we're looking and exploring possibilities uh, of a new downtown Y and looking at for what will we do with the men's residence and where will the health and fitness component be, including potentially exploring the current site we're on. And would this move happen within this five-year plan? Um, we need a solution within the five-year plan for sure. Absolutely. Um, we hope in the next five to seven years, We'll have a new uh, a new place and a new home, and to think about what services will be in this new place and new home. Are there any locations you can reveal right now that you're looking into? Uh, nothing that's firmed up right now. We are we have explored with the municipalities and spoken to developers who have purchased quite a few of the properties in the downtown core. But what we know is essential. We need to stay in the downtown core. Um, the ecosystem we provide, uh, health, fitness. The, the educational learning programs we have, the community sports, the youth intervention programs are critical. So we know our presence needs to be in the downtown core. And would this new um, facility or new building be a bigger footprint than what you currently have? Um, likely not, because right now when you look at the, the health and fitness components, about 120,000 square feet. Um, it was built at a, at a period of time when there were add-ons. It's probably not the best use of space. Um, so it wouldn't be the same size, but it would be a more efficient use of space. And there are examples of YMCA's in urban centers, um, working with partners. And we're also looking at potential shared space where, so it might not be just a standalone, but there might be other partners providing services in this sort of hub model. Would the 174 beds be that the number that we see in the new facility? Um, we're exploring what that may look like. Um, that's a large number. I've never seen anything uh, to date um, being built that size. Most shelters are kind of transitional housing. So what we're trying to get back to, 
um, likely would not be of, of that capacity. The idea is to try to get back to, um, if we are going to stay in this space with transitional housing, where people can come in and then move on to what affordable housing and, and up to another tier. And right now, what we're seeing is a, lo- is a log jam um, with over 200 people on a waiting list because there's not a transition to go or an affordable option to go from the, what was originally built as transitional housing. But best practice would not build 174 units um, in a very congregated setting. So we're exploring what other options there are and also having conversations with, with partners in terms of what's our role in this space and who's best provided and what can we do in this space moving forward. That's a model that's, that's uh, connected to the best practice that, that the city and municipality is looking at today. Certainly uh, an exciting time, a very challenging time as well, as you know, and, and partners are needed to make this happen. Manny, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for waking up with us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.